to be covering verses 1 to 12, chapter 3. I have some notes coming out. Raise your hand if you don't have any notes. I'm a note giver, so hopefully you're a note taker. Um, otherwise, if you take these home, you don't fill them out. You'll have a hard time remembering what I said today. And I will try to be, uh, since we have no overhead slides, I will try to be explicit about telling you where the blanks are and making sure you have a chance to fill them out. But we are, I think I might have like a tad more, maybe a couple more minutes. So I think we'll take the time to read the passage this morning. Let's stand together and read James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, please. I'm reading now New American Standard Version of the Bible. Follow along with me. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Lord, bless the reading of his words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as, as needy people, because we are people of unclean lips. From time to time, Lord, we are very much convicted by this word that we'll open this morning. Things come out so easily, so quickly. And so we pray this morning that your spirit would be free to draw us in, to gently convict, to admonish to direct, to encourage. Uh, Father, we would, um, we would be that, that perfect, that mature person more and more in our speech. Pray that you would just, by your spirit, open uh, your scriptures to your people and make them uh, applicable. We pray, Father, that... Uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock, my redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated, please. When we come to chapter three, we're, we're not entering into a new topic. We've already looked at the fact that James has addressed the tongue in some uh, smaller ways. This will be more expansive. 
It's interesting, and I won't this be a, a word search for you, but the tongue is addressed in every one of the five chapters of the book of James. We'll not go into giving you all the the uh, the pertinent facts about that, but you, as you read through it, you can look and underline that. But remember, back in James chapter one, James admonished. He says, "But let every one of you, in verse nineteen, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger." And um, he says later, "What is somebody who is truly religious?" In verse twenty-seven, um, I'm sorry, I skipped something. Oh, here it is. Verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And so we come to chapter three and you would think, okay, well, James is getting ready to tear into the audience. Not so. Actually, we see that uh, he is going to be challenging the teachers or those that would be teachers. And um, this is very important. That may have something to do with what we see later in chapter 3, verse 13 and 18, where he talks about what kind of person is wise and understanding. We might be talking about the cautions in these verses for the person who teaches. And then the later part of chapter 3, the kind of person you might want to look for to be in front of the congregation or teaching people side by side. There's also in chapter four, this concept of quarrels and conflicts. And that naturally happens sometimes when people are vested with responsibility to lead and to teach and others that aren't. There's sometimes uh, jealousies and those kind of things. So maybe that helps the context. But what we really would like to do is think about what a teacher or in the case of these people's understanding, the rabbi, what was that like when James says, not let many of you become teachers or rabbis? See, the Christian teacher entered into a perilous heritage. In the church, he took the place of the rabbi in Judaism. There were many great and saintly rabbis, but the rabbi was treated in a way that was liable to ruin the character of any man. His very name means my great one. Everywhere he went, he was treated with the utmost respect. It was actually held that a man's duty to his rabbi exceeded his duty to his parents because his parents only brought him into the life of this world, but the teacher brought him into the life of the world to come. It was actually said that if a man's parents and a man's teacher were captured by an enemy, the rabbi must be ransomed first. And how about that? It was true that a rabbi was not allowed to take money for teaching and that he was supposed to support his bodily needs by working a trade. But it was also held that he, it was especially pious and meritorious work to take a rabbi into your household and to support him with every care. It was desperately easy for the rabbi to become the kind of person whom Jesus depicted, a spiritual tyrant, an ostentatious ornament of piety, a lover of the highest place at any function, a person who gloried in the almost subservient respect shown to him in public. In the New Testament church, the teachers were of first-rate importance. Wherever they are mentioned, they are mentioned with honor. In the church at Antioch, they are ranked with the prophets who sent out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. In Paul's list of those who hold great gifts within the church, they come second only to the apostles and prophets. 
The apostles and prophets were forever on the move. Their field was the whole church, and they did not stay long in any one congregation. But the teachers worked within a congregation, and their supreme importance was that it must have been to them that the converts were handed over for instructions in the facts of the Christian gospel and for edification in the Christian faith. It was the teacher's awe-inspiring responsibility that he could put the stamp of his own faith and knowledge on those who were entering the church for the first time. In the New Testament itself, we get glimpses of teachers who failed in their responsibility and became false teachers, and we'll look at that shortly. But apart altogether from the false teachers, it is James' conviction that teaching is a dangerous occupation for any man. His instrument of is speech and his agent the tongue. As Robes puts it, James is concerned to point out the responsibility of teachers and the dangerous character of the instrument they have to use. And so we come to this chapter and unlike some other places we look, there's only one command in this entire 12 verses is right there in verse one, let not many of you become teachers. It's a command of caution not a command of forbiddance, but a command of caution. The fact is that anyone that would stand behind this sacred desk, as it's sometimes called, should likely tremble. I have had that experience myself. I remember when I first began preaching that uh, I was shaking. And, uh, and, and so it should continue to be. Why? Why should we have that kind of concern? Well, knowing that we shall incur a stricter judgment. The scriptures say that to whom much is given, much is also required. And the scriptures also say that all of us will give an account of every idle word we speak. How much more so when we stand and we open these sacred writings and presume to stand in the place of God's spokesman. That is the tenor, that is the sense of the attitude of this instruction. It is not meant to um, deter so much as it is meant to call us to a snapped attention to what we're actually doing and the implications of having this kind of power. In verse chapter two, it says, we all stumble in many ways. That is the sense in which we all sin. Some of us sin in one way more than another person and vice versa. We're not all tripped up. We're not all tempted. I know there's, <clears throat> I know there's some people that, let's say that they have a weakness to abuse alcohol. That has never been a temptation of mine. That doesn't make me better than I because I may have a sin that tempts me more easily than they. And that's the point James is making here. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect, not like sinless, but a mature man, a seasoned man, able to bridle the body as well. We have some, some correlating passages here because we see that um, that we all sin with our tongue in some way or the other. I would think uh, it might not be too hard. Let's do a little audience participation. How many sins of the tongue can you name? Just call them out. Gossip, lying, lying. slander, 
blaspheming, angry words. There's more. <laughs> Scoffing, yes. Boasting, thank you. Complaining, yes. Grumbling. How about coarse jesting, cursing at those? We, we probably, if we just took a few minutes in the book of Proverbs, we would come up with several more. And we all have that ability to slip up very easily. Turn over to Acts chapter 20 and to just give you some more context of why this is such a concern for James. Obviously, as we've learned, James is one of the earliest epistles that we have uh, by way of it being recorded as part of the scriptures in the New Testament. But in Acts chapter 20, we want to see that there's a concern not just for the false teachers that are outside the church, but the, for the false teachers that can wend their way inside the church. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is leaving Ephesus, and he is addressing the elders there. And he talks about, and I think this is valuable that we cover this, it talks about his spirit of how he spoke the word. And he says, in verse 18, you yourselves know that from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, Bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying the bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Just stop there a minute. He's now mentioned that twice, solemnly that there's this sense of, of it's a holy work done by unholy people. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, verse 27. Notice this warning. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come from outside the church and try to teach false doctrines. No, that's not what he says. It's more dangerous. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. It's a challenge to keep the doctrinal purity, to keep the handed down tradition pure and uncontaminated by false teaching. It's not just the, the ones that come, obviously, walking around in human flesh. You as our congregation are exposed to lies, misinformation, deception through social media, through the mainstream media, through books. There's all kinds of ways false teaching is working its way in. So the challenge 
for those that speak the word of God. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Interestingly, Paul is addressing the people in Ephesus, and now Timothy is now at Ephesus. Verse 3 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies that give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. Same church, same problem Paul predicted. And so you have kind of the sense of this, this context that we come to this passage. There's a reason for caution. But Paul says it is possible for someone to be mature, somebody to be completed in the way that they can bridle their tongue and bridle their body as well. And he, he gives us two illustrations. And he says there's an incongruent control that you should think about as you understand your own tongue. That something small can control something big. And he says, first of all, we put a bit into the horse's mouth so that they obey us and we direct their entire body. I looked this up, a uh, thoroughbred, thoroughbred racehorse, which doesn't carry a lot of extra weight, weighs about a thousand pounds. But the bit in the bridle that is put into that horse's mouth weighs about two pounds. Imagine the incongruity of something with only two pounds moving that thousand pound beast. In the same way, there's the rudder in the ship. The ships, though they are so great, are driven by strong winds. They're directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of pilot desires. I was thinking about this, trying to bring it into modern times. Um, I, was, I was watching a, a news program that was talking about uh, the people in the Air Force that control these drones that send out missiles and destroy things. They're, they're gamers, basically. You know, if you come to task, you probably are well prepared to go into the Air Force and maybe learn how to become a drone pilot. Because they basically they just use joysticks, and yet they can unleash a fury of damage and destruction. In verse 5 and 6, we see there is the comprehensive impact of the tongue. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. It boasts of its great accomplishments and its great power. And in a sense, it's kind of like metaphorically doing so because the tongue can make that pronouncement. Think about the fact that a person like Adolf Hitler, basically he wielded power not because he was a great strategist. He had people to do that. He moved a whole nation to the destruction upon the continent of Europe with his mouth. With the thousands of people that were assembled in those, those stadiums and his speeches, he moved people to anger, to jealousy, to hatred, to suspicion and mistrust with his mouth. It boasts of its great power. It, it, 
it does, it's basically saying something that is very much true. And then we see, behold, how great a force is set aflame by such a small fire. I date myself. There used to be a song, kind of a little bit cheesy. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. And soon all those around will warm it to its glow. And remember that song, if you're like 45 and above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's great if it's the fire of the Holy Spirit. But the tongue can do the same thing. It only takes a small spark. It only takes that cigarette dropped in the forest. The fire, the campfire that's waning down in an ember that jumps out. Has the idea here that, um, that it consumes. It just, I mean, I used to work in a business where I would go to fires when they were actually being expanding and growing and the fire firefighters are trying to put them out. I was talking to one of my daughters recently and talking about how it's a sad thing if you're far from a fire hydrant because that thing can take off very, very quickly. And um, that's the same way with the tongue. Just a careless word can damage somebody severely. And while we're at it, let's modernize a bit. Let's talk about digital, digital conversations. It's not just what we say person to person. It's what we put down and what we text out and the pictures we pass out. I mean, some of the most terrible things I've heard is kids that have been digitally bullied by awkward pictures being spread around among their friends, destroying somebody's life. Got to be very, very careful. It is the world has the idea here. It sets, um, it is, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. This is um, the word cosmos in Greek has this idea that there's this whole arrangement of unrighteousness associated with the tongue. We just named so many different things that are sins of the tongue that can, that can destroy bearing false witness, giving false accusations um, have really damaged people. It has the power to defile. Turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Well, we have it there. Matthew chapter 15 it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, false witness, and slanders. How is it that words cause murders? How does that happen? Start. Go ahead. Incitement? Yeah. Incitement can cause murders. It can start with a heart when someone says, I hate you. How many people have hated somebody in their heart long before they ever picked up any kind of weapon to take their life? It defiles the entire person, but many of these start. What adulteries and fornications have started with sensuality and coarse jesting and inappropriate flirtation. 
We see also there's there's some interesting things in these verses. It says, and it sets on fire the course of our life. This is an interesting word picture. It actually says the wheel, the, the little is the wheel of our life. There's this idea that there is this cycle that we go through and that at any point we can redirect our life by our words. And that's can be a good and powerful thing. It can also be a very destructive thing. And once something becomes very significant in that course, it has the ability to multiply itself and multiply itself into more sin and more sin. Think about the person who lies. Is it usually just one lie? <laughs> or, or does it end up that there has to be another lie to cover that lie and then to explain away something else. It has this idea of things revolve one onto the other. And then we find out also that it is set on fire by hell. The tongue is a satanic foothold. Satan is addressed and, and called out by Jesus himself. And what is he called? The liar the liar, the father of lies, a falsehood. Finish the phrase, no one ever had to teach a child to lie. No one ever had to teach a child to lie. I mean, it's like inside of us to speak falsehood. But there is some hope. It may not be so evident from these verses because it just looks like another example here, but in verses seven and eight, we see that control is based on connection to a tamer. Control is based on connection to a tamer. Notice in verse seven, for every species of beast and birds of reptiles, creatures and sea is tamed and has been tamed by humans. And, you know, I, I think they're getting rid of circuses. I don't know why, I guess, you know, we're now, you know, that's unfair to animals or whatever, but I've gone to the circus. It, it's astounding to me that people smaller than me, little women, you know, five, five foot, five and a half, get into a ring with a many thousand pound elephant. And with a small stick can get that element, that elephant to move about and stand and lift them up with their trunk. Amazing feats. I think what we need to see here is that there is this connection between the creature and the tamer. There's a general statement. Yes, these, these animals, these birds, falconry, we think about, you know, and Shamu, if you think about, you know, these, these whales in these sea parks. And um, just astounding things that human beings have been able to teach and train animals to do. That's the general statement. But the specific statement is not everyone can do that. You're not going to get in the ring. You're not going to get into that big expanse of water at SeaWorld and try to do what the trainer has done. That kind of has this implication that it can be tamed. There just has to be the right relationship. It says no one can tame the tongue. And what we find there, there's a little insight in a Greek. It says, no one of men. 
there's a word, anthropone, meaning no one among men can tame the tongue. And the implication is there is somebody that can. There is a tamer there. He's the Holy Spirit. He has the power to produce spiritual fruit in us. So we have the power of self-control supernaturally. And that's your supernaturally. No one supernaturally, the tongue can be tamed. But humanly speaking, it's impossible. Supernaturally, when we're in relation to the tamer of the tongue, the Holy Spirit, we can become that mature man of verse two. And so there is some hope here in this passage. It's not all a beatdown. It's there is a process by which we don't have to be subservient to the slip ups of our tongue, inevitable as they are that they'll happen. We can grow into Christ's likeness and have those things happen less and less and less. And by way of some explanation, I know some people think that the idea is, well, I'm more spiritual. I just stay silent. I just won't say anything. Man, that's not a good thing. Don't fall into that. Just that silent treatment thing is not a good thing. There is this sense in which it's not enough just not to say the wrong or the bad thing. It's the fact that there has to be a transformation so that we see the value and the power of saying the good thing, sharing the encouraging word, speaking the truth and love among our brothers, confronting sin and reproving it when it needs to be done. It's not just enough to be passive. We have to be active with the control of the spirit to speak as the spirit wills for us to speak. Verses 9 to 12 finish up some hypocritical contradictions. Some hypocritical contradictions. Verse 9, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. That's a contradiction. To stand and sing, to praise God, to bless his name, to call out his attributes, and that's all that's an all great thing. We're called to do that as part of worship with personal and corporate. And then to turn around and say something terrible to call it a curse. And this is a, a particular thing. And this is maybe, maybe different than how we curse today. But there was this, this spiritual sense that you could be religious by cursing the evil person. But in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said for us to love our enemies to bless those that curse you. So you remember the eye for eye principle in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was constantly talking. Well, you've heard this said, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus, again, that positive pronouncement, bless those that curse you, bless and don't curse in return. The idea wasn't just saying a bad word. The idea of a curse was to call out for someone to be cut off from God and eternally punished. By God, would you, whatever. And it was kind of like this official sanction. You're asking God to call down judgment on a very person that he has said that he will show mercy to if they repent. And many times we're so quick to judge somebody as 
being worthy of that. And yet we'll see later in James, we're not to be judges of one another. That's for someone else. These final verses, you have these illustrations. It says, for with the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Basically, it's against our new nature to speak like we would have in our old nature. We have a Holy Spirit living within us that empowers us, that can tame our tongue, that can give us the power to do the edifying thing. And so when we act in this way, it's against our nature, just as these things would be unfound in nature. Can a fountain send out from the same opening both sweet and bitter water? That's actually a word there, like us. Sweet water and bitter water. If you, there's, a, there's a fountain out towards Patasco Park. People go and fill up. It was shut down for a while. I guess got contaminated. I don't know. But, um, but they say people, people love that water. They go and they fill up their, their jugs with it. And it draws people because it's apparently sweet and, and tasteful. You would not want to go and all of a sudden find it embittered. And you see also, can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Can one species of tree producing, uh, tree producing the fruit of a vine also can a tree produce the fruit of a vine or can a vine produce the same fruit that comes from a tree? They're two different plants. They have a, a correlation of the fruit that should come to them or come from them. You know, we don't see apples on vines and we don't see grapes on trees, right? And he says, look, this is incongruous with the nature of these things. And it's also incongruous. That salty water also, also all of a sudden becomes fresh. If something's brackish, it doesn't of its own self just become fresh and tasteful. And he says, so your nature, you who have been redeemed, you who have been bought by Christ, you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's incongruous for these works of the flesh, these old things to be the predominant character of your life. Let not many become teachers knowing that you will experience a stricter judgment. We'll all, on the same hand, have to give an account of every idle word that we speak. So question and conclusion is, who do you teach? You might not be the teacher with the label, but who do you teach? Your kids? A Sunday school class? Small group? A Bible study? part of the teaching team here at Oak Ridge, another place. I might even say a group of people at your place of employment. If you give lectures or presentations, you have the opportunity to live as a Christian, to speak gracious words, encouraging words, to speak words of truth, even in the middle of what you're doing business-wise. Because those are eternal souls in front of you. You have the opportunity with the power of the tongue to influence and direct their life. I had a friend who was a, um, a health teacher at South Carroll High School years ago, and he had a winsome way. He was teaching health, and of course, he had to teach sex ed and all that stuff. He had a winsome way of basically taking lots of scriptural principles and taking off the verses and then importing them into his curriculum. 
turned in to be an amazing impact on those young people to understand what God says about that topic, still be shrewd enough not to get fired. <laughs> Let me give you some things to think about. If you're teaching, and you probably will at some point, maybe just one or two, maybe just somebody you're discipling, be conscientious with handling the truth. Be conscientious with handling the truth. That is, if, if you don't know something, learn it. Do your homework. Don't put your opinions in place of conviction, conviction based on the truth. You know, Paul says the things that you've been convinced of, you've seen and heard and been convinced of, pass on the faithful men. This idea is that you studied it enough to say, I'm not that I might not be wrong on some area. I'm willing to be corrected, but I'm convinced to the best of my knowledge, this is what the word of God says. And this is what it means by what it says. Do your work. Second, your character, you should have character that matches your message. You know, there's this poem one of my professors used to say, I'd rather see a message than hear one any day. I'd rather see a message than hear one every day. Number three, consecration of that little member between your teeth. Turn to Romans chapter six. Consecration that little member between the teeth. Romans chapter 6, <clears throat> and this teaching about how the work of salvation has come to be in our, our body. And notice verse 12, it says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. And your tongue is part of that body. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your member, in this case in our passage today, your member as an instrument of righteousness to God. God, this is your tongue. Would you speak through it and with it? Let's end. Let's say this together psalm 19 14 let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O lord my rock and my redeemer let's pray together our father we are we're humbled we are reproved we are directed we're encouraged by your word this morning Reminded once again that it's not true. Sticks and stones break bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true, Lord. Words hurt. They hurt deeply. They hurt with long and lasting impact. They change people's lives. And many times in this cursed world, they change them with devastating effect. And yet you have entrusted us with a message, with the good news of the death and the resurrection, the power that can come to change our life and to change that wheel of life in a way that is affected for eternity. 
And so help us, Father, we pray to be submitted to you for our tongues, our mouths, that you would consecrate them, Lord, to thee, consecrate them, Lord, to thee, we pray in Christ's name.